This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Annette Gordon-Reed. At Harvard, she is the Carol K. Fortzheimer Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, the Charles Warren Professor of American Legal History at the Law School, and a Professor of History at the University. She received the 2008 National Book Award and the 2009 Pulitzer Prize in History for the Hemings of Monticello, an American Family. Her most recent book is The Most Blessed of Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of Imagination, which she wrote with Peter S. Onuf. She is also the author of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, An American Controversy, uh, among other books. Her honors include the National Humanities Medal, a MacArthur Fellowship, and Election to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Professor uh, Gordon-Reed, welcome to Berkeley. Glad to be here. Where were you born and raised? I was born in Livingston, Texas, and when I was about six months old, my parents moved to Conroe, Texas, which was between uh, Livingston and Houston. So it's in East Texas, about 40 minutes north of Houston. Looking back, how do you think your parents uh, shaped your thinking about the world? Well, uh, my parents were both people who loved to read, so we always had books in the house. They were very political people, and we discussed politics. I was a little girl. It was in the 60s, and of course, that was a very volatile time, things going on on the television, conversation. So it was a house where people really discussed intellectual ideas, argued. They're debaters. You know, we argued points all the time. So um, it was a very... I would say lively intellectual atmosphere. And and of your parents were were both equally an influence or, or was your mother especially important? Well, they were influences in both ways. I suppose my mother was important because my mother had uh sort of plans for me. She had ideas that I was going to do something wonderful. I guess everybody's mother feels that way about their children, but she was very very she was a school teacher. Um, she would order books for the summer. My brothers and I were really upset because we actually had to have some version of school even through the summer. <laughs> uh, what did she teach? She talked English. Mm. She was an English teacher, loved grammar, uh, was her, her, her thing, was a great writer herself. So I think the sort of extra preparation, the idea that she was preparing me for something was very, very big in my life. And so uh, she was a great influence. My father was too, however, because he was the one, I think was probably even more political than she. So he was the one who sort of fostered the kind of um, debate and uh, discussion uh, quite a lot in our household. Were, were history books especially important in your reading lists? Or, or? Yes, I loved, you know, I discovered that I loved history, um, sort of reading age-appropriate history books in school. But my parents had other books around uh, during that time about black history, African-American history, and so forth. And even just you know regular history or all history. And um, that's something that I developed a love for very early on. And so it was a way to spend time, particularly in the summers, in the heat of, of Texas, yes. when you have to come inside. Uh, there's a great deal to boredom. You know, <laughs> you don't have distractions. You read. And I was always in the library checking out books. So, yeah. And and what was it like as a young person in East Texas sort of uh, experiencing the civil rights movement with knowledgeable parents who were uh, steeping you in, in history and thinking and conversation and so on? Well, it was, it was particularly interesting for me because I integrated our school district. I was the first black child to go to a white school mm -hmm. in our school district, and that was... It was a big point um, because they had been resisting, this is in the mid-60s, they had been resisting Brown, the Brown decision coming up with all kinds of plans about how to avoid that, and one was called a freedom of choice plan, and white parents were supposed to pick white schools for their kids, and black parents were supposed to pick black schools. 
and my parents following the news, understanding that the court and the Fifth Circuit and the court would probably not uphold those rules, decided to send me to the white school. And this would have been at, at what grade level? I uh, was first grader. Oh, okay. I was a first grader. So for the first year, I was there by myself, uh, and I was very conscious of there being on something of a mission. Uh, they, my parents agreed with the school district not to go to the press, not to talk to the press, um, because they wanted it to be very, very low-key, mm. none of this you know, escorting into schools or anything like that, but just as sort of normal as it could possibly be. Uh, and I was there for um, a year by myself. And then, of course, the court did strike mm. these down, and then everybody had to shift and move, and I was already sort of in place. So, so it sounds like this background uh, that we just talked about empowered you to be a tough little kid to go through that. Is that fair? <laughs> well, I don't know. It's, I've thought about this over the years. It's a chicken and egg thing. Was I th- the right personality to do this mm-hmm. or did my, it shape my personality being there? I'm sure it's a little bit of both. Um, I've not minded being by myself, as mm-hmm. which I was uh, quite often during that time period. Um, you know, reading, I knew how to sort of take care of myself in a way. So it was a profound experience, and it's not, not something that I've, I've thought about it, but I probably haven't thought about it the way a historian should think about it. I've sort of turned myself to other people's lives and not my own. But it's, it's a, it was a pretty, pretty formative and a kind of an amazing thing to do. I'm not sure that uh, I'm, you know, people say, well, that's a lot to put on a kid. But I suppose somebody had to do it. You had self-confidence, though, from your parents. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, definitely. My mother, uh, the one thing, my mother believed I could do anything, mm-hmm. you know, and that, that kind of, it, that assurance about that could, could be, you know, it's empowering, but it could also be sometimes, oh, you know, I really can't do that. But she, she really did believe in me. So that idea of, of, of her belief and her support, her parents, my grandmother, uh, I had a grandmother who was quite extravagant. I remember her going to, that she went to Sackowitz, which was the big sort of mm-hmm. department store in Houston, and buying lots of clothes, you know, the, you know great clothes, because I was going to be dressed to the nines uh, uh, when I went. So it was a, it was a f- kind of a family enterprise. So I, they didn't sit down and say, now you're on a mission, mm-hmm. but you could tell from all of this that this was something that was, uh, uh, that was important. Now, as you're reading a, a book in elementary school, I guess, about Jefferson mm-hmm. and his black friend. Tell us that story because mm-hmm. that, it starts there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, uh, yeah. Yes, it starts there. I, I read a book, a biography, uh, a child's biography, when I was in the third grade about Jefferson. And the story was told by a fictional slave boy who was supposed to be telling Jefferson's story. And I noted <coughs> the contrast between the depiction of the boy who was sort of um, you know, lazy and and not serious, and he was upset with Jefferson because Jefferson, you know, Marsa Tom or however they described him, you know, wanted to read books and was curious and wanted to find out about the world. He didn't want to hunt and fish and everything. And I remember being embarrassed by that because it was the book was sort of in the back of our room where they had the little library for it. We had a real library, but also a library in the the back of the room. And I knew that my classmates might see that, and I knew that they would make the identification between me and the enslaved boy who was depicted in a way, sort of unnecessarily, in an exaggerated way, as this person who was unserious, as in contrast to Jefferson who was white Mm. (laughs) and was supposed to be all that was good, and the enslaved boy was, you know, stupid, essentially. And it struck me then that that was unfair, but it also sort of the sort of interest in Jefferson and Monticello and slavery sort of came that was sort of the germ of it right there you know with the the combination of the interest and at the same time you know concern about the way the black um uh, enslaved boy was depicted so it started there um i kept i don't it's people have asked me why did the other biographies there was Madison and J, you know George Washington Carver Dolly Madison why did Jefferson stand out? And it's just, it's, an, it's not something you can explain. Why does someone want to play the violin instead of 
the piano. I mean, it just it just struck me, um, and uh, that's how it all got started. I continued to read about him over the years. And and so uh, you completed your high school in Texas, mm -hmm. and then uh, where did you go from there when you went to to college? I went to Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire, so the opposite end of uh, of the map. Um, I wanted to go away to school in New England. There was sort of romance of doing that. So yeah, that's where I went. And and uh, at Dartmouth, did you when when did you get the history bug? Did you get it at uh, at Dartmouth or? Did you have the history bug? I well, mean, I, I mean, I'd had the history bug since I, from elementary school, even before Jefferson, I, I you know, would read, I was very, very interested in Egypt, <laughs> uh, books about ancient times, and so it, the history bug was always there for me. At Dartmouth, uh, it was wonderful because Baker Library is there, and, you know, fabulous library, and I could sort of indulge and read all that I, that I wanted, and I also was a history major. Mm -hmm. And and then, but then, uh, when you uh, and were there any teachers at Dartmouth that interested you in the direction of history that, that stand out? As uh, you Michael Green, uh, mm -hmm. the late Michael Green was was influential. Leo Spitzer, Elizabeth Whalen, who was a Russian historian. For mm -hmm. I had a brief detour where I was very much interested mm -hmm. in Russian history and sort of read everything that I could in Russian novels and so forth. Um, yeah, there were people there who who interested me. And and a course on Jefferson. Or um, not a course on Jefferson, but certainly courses in which Jefferson figured. And at graduate from Dartmouth, so why law school and not history? Well, uh, I had had this sort of dual interest in law, um, sort of stoked by my father, who sort of admired lawyers, and he thought that that would be a good idea. And and also, I think because of my background, I knew that my going to Anderson Elementary School had been started. The process for doing that came from the law. Mm -hmm. and came from lawyers who made that uh, possible, who had actually effectuated that change. So lawyers were seen to me as um, uh, people who could affect change in society. You know, I thought a little bit about journalism. That was my first job when I was 15. I worked at the Conroe Courier, and this was the age of Woodward and Bernstein, and they were sort of heroes. But journalism, um, I found when I got to Dartmouth, journalists seemed a little clicky to me, mm. uh, and mm. it was sort of a boys' club, and uh, so that was sort of out for me. I figured that the actual profession might be that way. I didn't go to history um, because I was reading and I was told that there were too many PhDs in history. What I didn't understand is that there are almost no PhD, black PhDs in history, and they would have loved <laughs> mm -hmm. to have had me go to the program. And I could have gotten a JD PhD, but I went to, uh, decided to go to Harvard Law School and figured that if I was interested in history, you could keep reading it. Uh, I like to ask my uh, guests about the skills and the temperament uh, that they think are important for the professions that they've undertaken. Now, uh, you, you have dual professions yes, in yes, a way. Uh -huh. uh, uh, so, so let's talk about that. In other words, what, what, what skills does a historian and then a lawyer really need? And is there an overlap between the two? Well, there's definitely an overlap. I would say the skills that a historian that I've brought to bear in, in, in doing history is curiosity. That's the first thing. You have to have curiosity and tenacity. You have to have imagination to, f to figure out a research strategy. I mean, how do you find things uh, that you're interested in? And that's very, very important. I think that certainly overlaps with, with the law. The difference between history and law uh, on that score, however, is that historians um, have the luxury, have the capacity to direct their own research. You know, if I'm interested in Jefferson and I want to do a book about Jefferson or whatever, if I'm interested in the civil rights movement, I can do that. Law is a service profession. A lot of people don't realize that, but law, lawyers are servants. Um, and you have to learn how to have curiosity about other people's lives. You have to be, uh, to learn uh, how to interest yourself in other people's lives and do the kind of job, the concentration that's needed uh, to be really, really serious because, you know, lawyers, unlike historians, lawyers are dealing with, you, you hold people's lives in your hands. In some instances, actually, you know, people could be put away, could die 
um, based on what their lawyer does or does not do. And that seriousness of purpose has to be there. It's not a, it's not a game. I mean, people, can, you can see it as a, a game, but it's a very important, important game. Not that history isn't important, but it's no, there are no, no life and death stakes there. Now, now, in both, in a way, well, especially if you're a trial lawyer, you're, you, you have to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and a historian has to tell a yeah, story. Yeah, oh, no, the law, law is a writing. I mean, that's the other reason that law could be uh, a, 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 um, a choice for me, because lawyers are writers, as well, and they're storytellers. And even even if you're in, you're in trial, um, even if you're doing you know whether it's criminal law or or civil, you're telling a story, and whoever tells the superior story wins. Now, uh, the other issue here in in both, it would seem that you make decisions about the facts and what are to be included mm-hmm. and excluded. I mean, if you're oh, yeah. defending somebody who mm-hmm. there's a certain factual situation where mm-hmm. you don't want it to come up yeah, in the yeah. trial. Yeah. Talk a little about that because that that is uh, very important in your very compelling first work, mm-hmm. uh, looking at what the historians have said about Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. I, the first book that I wrote was about the historiography of this question whether Jefferson had had this long-term liaison with an enslaved woman, Sally Hemings. And, you know, as a lawyer, I think people, I was a law professor at the time, just a law professor at the time, not, uh, didn't have a joint appointment. Uh, I noticed that historians sort of view lawyers as doing what they call law office history, namely cherry-picking facts to make, to write a brief. the problem, however, is that good lawyers don't just cherry-pick the facts. Good lawyers know the opponent's case better than the, po- the opponent because you have to know that, those kinds of things. And what I saw was historians sort of cherry-picking and not, because there was no opponent, uh, not understanding that one of these days that could come back to haunt them because they had left stuff out. They had shaded uh, the truth by omission. So uh, what I wanted to do in writing the book was to replicate that moment when you're a lawyer. You're looking at the entire record. You know your side. You know the other side. So you know the sides. You know the story, the possible stories, but also give attention to, analyze the other side. So is it is it fair to say that uh, it was fortunate that you went to law school into, oh, absolutely. In, in, instead of history graduate school because the law and the training empowered you oh, to absolutely. see the problem? It yeah. empowered you. It gave you the confidence, somebody might say arrogance, <laughs> <laughs> to say that you could take this on. I mean, I, I've talked to, since I've become a historian and I've had, I pal around with historians now, uh, they, a couple of them have told me that if I had been a graduate student, they would have told me not to do my first book. They would have dissuaded me from doing that. But as a law professor, we sort of think we're many experts on everything and can opine on everything. But it also, we had the tools, I, and we were confident mm-hmm. to do it because we understood that law school is about critical thinking. And critical thinking is, is of use in any venue. I mean, it's easy to, I suppose, to, well, easier to sort of, you know, replicate a story, to repeat a story. But when you get to the point of taking things apart, taking arguments apart, putting them back together, analyzing, that's what law school is about, and that's what lawyers do, and that's what law professors do. So, yeah, I I think, you know, I, I credit my training in law school with giving me, number one, the confidence to do that and to do that first book, but also know how to do it in a way that would be effective. And, and the first book, uh, let me give the exact title, is Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, An American Controversy. And uh, in the, it, it, it's quite a read, so it's extremely well written, <laughs> but it it's, it's almost reads like a mystery story. Mm-hmm. And uh, in addition, the reader becomes excited, and I'm coming at this cold in preparation <laughs> for this interview. It's, it's uh, uncovering a truth, mm-hmm. basically, in, uh, and uh, you, at one point in the book, uh, 
you 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 as a as a person trained in the law, mm -hmm. you tell us about the rules of evidence mm -hmm. and and how evidence contributes to burden of proof. So mm -hmm. so you're ready to go yeah. and you're empowering the reader to be ready to go. Yeah, well, I saw myself, people think, you know, the, the publicist for the book uh, that uh, went to the University Press of Virginia, they don't usually have a publicist, but they had an idea that this book might be a crossover hit. So they hired somebody and the idea was to sort of sell this as a trial. But that really isn't what it is. It's really more a law professor talking to students that this is what we do to talk about how you use evidence and how evidence can be misused. And uh, I had the experience of sort of, you know, going through the book. My, my own understanding about this story was unfolding as I was writing the book. And I think if I were to do it now, I probably would go back and change the beginning uh, of the book, because I think if you can sort of see me moving towards <laughs> more towards a conclusion about this that I that I didn't have before when I started. I mean, the book is really about how historians had written about the subject, not whether or not Tom and Sally actually had an affair. I wasn't going to make a statement about that. I just knew that the argument was was sort of tainted by understandings about race and understandings about class. A thumb was put on the scale for whites and wealthy people. And when less empower, in, empowered people said things, it was, it was disregarded. And I thought that, that that lesson could be displayed in the book. But as I'm doing it, I'm realized I started to find information saying, wait a minute, um, this is, <laughs> I could talk a little bit about the actual substance of the question too. It's interesting because uh, you said uh, yesterday at lunch uh, in, in a conversation with faculty that uh, uh, you were you wound up doing this because this was the time that the Jefferson movie came out, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and in a lot of the the, the reviews mm -hmm. were saying, well, you know, the, this movie is nonsense because there was yeah, no yeah, such yeah. relationship. Yeah. That that's very interesting because. Not only was there conventional wisdom, mm -hmm. uh, let's put it this way, there was historical wisdom mm -hmm. which, uh, about which there was no controversy mm -hmm. before you wrote, but also it had seeped into the popular culture, mm -hmm. uh, and that provoked you, and, and, and rightfully so. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and really it was about you're, you're overthrowing a consensus in mm -hmm. the history profession. Mm -hmm. Talk a little about that because that must have been quite empowering mm -hmm. uh, for you because you were seeing a truth, mm -hmm. the lawyer that you were, mm -hmm. that nobody else was really seeing, especially mm -hmm. among those most qualified to see it. Yeah. Well, it, it all of the sort of parts of my life came together. As I mentioned earlier, one of the things that uh, lawyers do is they can affect change. If they see an injustice, they can take action. And that's what you're supposed to do. That feeling of outrage at an injustice was what propelled me to do this because I knew when people were saying, oh, this didn't happen, Jefferson wouldn't be involved with the slave girl, all those kinds of things. I knew that Madison Hemings, who was an, ens an enslaved man at Monticello and the son of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, and another an enslaved man, uh, Israel Jefferson, whose real last name was Gillette, had said that it happened. And I thought, you know, these are people who are the objects of slavery, the victims of slavery. If we can't listen to them, then what does that say about us as a country, as a community, as a society? You know, you typically reserve your greatest sympathy for the people who are victims, who are obvious victims of oppression. You don't spend all of your time, you know, mollycoddling the person mm -hmm. who has the jackboot on somebody's neck. Uh, and that's what was going on. And I felt outraged and I wanted to, you know, talk to the men, and these were largely white male historians who were, you know, basically dismissing this story to sort of, you know, lay bare their prejudices and, and, and their uh, illogic, really. Um, and their, their assurance about this was I thought unjustified. So it was kind of fun. Mm. I was having a blast, you know, doing it. It's one of the most 
uh, enjoyable experiences and, I've had. And, and this, uh, Eddie's talking again about the, the character of a lawyer historian. This t took courage, basically, to, to, be, to be able to, to say, this is wrong, this is not right, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but that's what lawyers do. Right. This is, this is wrong, this is not right, and that what law school empowers you to do, and the profession, the sort of history of the profession, and the heroes of the profession are the people who do that, mm -hmm. are the people who stand up and say, Charles Hamilton Houston, who decides, you know, I'm going to use what training I have to begin to chip away at the system of Jim Crow. And it might be crazy to do, or the tobacco lawyers who you thought would never beat that particular lobby. People were just sure that will never happen. And they eventually beat it. And uh, they actually won. And those are the people that we, uh, that we revere, uh, the people who take a chance, who stand up and say this is wrong, or, or take on the, um, the, the tough challenge. And so it was in keeping with the ethos of the profession and in the ethos of what my parents taught me mm -hmm. growing and up. And also the ethos of the civil rights movement. Absolutely, so, you know that, that it, yeah, 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 it, it yeah. changed everything. Now, in in the the triumph of the conventional uh, the conventional wisdom mm -hmm. before you came along, uh, let's talk a little about what's going on here because Jefferson is not anybody. No. He's, a, he's, he's an icon of American history. Mm -hmm. You know, he, all men are created equal and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, as you said, uh, Sally uh, Hemings was a, a slave, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. And what, when, when I read the book, the, what came to mind, it was a, what you had identified is the structure of intellectual racism, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we don't think of... Uh, racism being embedded in the assumptions of establishment historians. Yeah, uh, up until well, yeah. you know this point in time, uh, uh, and and w so on the one hand we have the icon, but then you have this whole group of people who were dismissed, who were diminished, diminished as human beings. Who's basically it doesn't matter mm -hmm. what they're saying because it's not true because they're black. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's. That's the importance of the story. I mean, even whatever you thought about the ultimate answer to the question, that was the thing that I thought was so striking and that I wanted people to say, well, you know, this is happening in this particular story. Where else is this happening? How else is this happening? And to get people to think that racism, because Duma Malone and Merrill Peterson, these are people who were famous, famous Jefferson, histori historians. Je Jefferson historians. These were people who were considered Southern liberals. You know, they were—they're not the people that you would think of sitting around with the sort of, you know, with a with a Klan robe on or anything like that. But it shows you how, as you said, assumptions and habits of mind can embed themselves and are embedded in the structure of how we think about things. And unless it's this constant process of questioning yourself um, that can bring it—that that brings it out—and that's why it's so hard. It's a difficult thing to examine your own. Uh, prejudices and assumptions and think that you might be, you know, acting in a way that is prejudicial, acting in a way that's unfair. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, we can't, I want to move on to Jefferson, but there, there are certain things that stand out so over and above this big picture that you have of, well, they're black, so what they said yeah, or wrote was not important. But there, but as you as you work your way through this, there are little pieces of evidence mm -hmm. that uh, are quite remarkable. Uh, I'll mention a few of them. That Sally Hemings makes an agreement with Jefferson to come back from France, where she could have been free, and because she was a mother worrying about her children, mm -hmm. uh, that she had was mm -hmm. she was pregnant, mm -hmm. she would have more children, and he promised to free them when they were twenty-one. Mm -hmm. uh, little things like. Madison Hemings, many years later, tells the story. Nobody believes it. They dismiss it because the editor of the paper is an abolitionist. Yeah. So they say, <laughs> well, everything he says is a lie. The, the, everything <laughs> is, but, but Madison, in this interview, 
tells us little things about uh, Jefferson. For example, he really didn't care to be a farmer. He didn't like farming. Mm-hmm. He was actually a craftsman mm-hmm. who liked to work in a shop, and he trained his his uh, uh, children by Hemings to to have trades and mm-hmm. and be craftsmen. Mm-hmm. So little things oh, that tell that tell us a lot about Jefferson, and in a way, the fact the way he treated his his black uh, children uh, uh, brings out the humanity in him, in a way. Although he's living in this system, he's still a slaveholder. Yeah, I think that's a really important point about small details. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when people, when police, for example, do investigations, they always keep something behind. They don't say the thing out loud because they know if they encounter somebody who knows that detail, they obviously know something. And so that's what you find in Israel Jefferson's um, uh, statements and Madison Hemings' statements, little things that tell you about Jefferson, that tell you about the lives that you can check that can be corroborated from outside information so you know that this person isn't just making stuff up. And they never, historians, because they were not interested in really finding the answer because they didn't want it to be true, going through that process to sort of corroborate what he was saying. And on, and on the other side, I should say, looking at the Jefferson family official story and that was replete with errors and lies, I should have to say, that they had to know that this person was lying about those things, yet it didn't affect their overall credibility. The only thing that was important was that they said Jefferson didn't do it. So they ignored all the signs so it was like, you know, when you come to this and um, begin to pull it all apart, it was relatively easy to do because it was just so blatant the way they were sort of blinding themselves to, uh, to indications that this story was true. And, and you know, th- what struck me that that's why it's important, this book is so important even uh, today where we've moved beyond the controversy because what you're showing is in the law you apply the same standards of evidence and burden of proof to both sides. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it, it, was didn't, not, happen. it didn't happen. And it didn't happen because of, of uh, you know, the racism. Mm-hmm. That it, 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 It's not to say necessarily, I don't know these historians, these famous historians, that they were racist mm-hmm. interpersonally, but, but they bought in mm-hmm. to a story because uh, it it was uh, well, it was the conventional wisdom, and they, they did, and they didn't want it to be true. Yeah, because what it would say—they didn't want your version. No, they, they didn't want the version. They didn't want the Jefferson to be the father of these children. He didn't want Jefferson yeah. to be. I mean, Mattis, I mean, um, Duma Malone at the end of his life, uh, he gives an interview to the New York Times, and he says, "Well." I could see him having sex with her one or two times. Yeah. But what I couldn't see would be a 38-year connection, which I thought was kind of telling. It's remarkably telling. So yeah. it would be okay once or twice, yeah. but not anything long-term. And, you know, it was almost as if, well, one or two times puts him in the range of a normal white guy, Yeah. but the other is sort of alien to him. And so that... I think it said a lot about his values as well. You know, in addition to your lawyerly skills, and I mean that in a complimentary way, and your your uh, uh, research, your your prodigious research in all of these works, there there is an element uh, in your work and in your talk of of common kind of human insight, mm-hmm. basically common sense. Mm-hmm. Well, what would a person do mm-hmm. in a situation like Talk a little about that because because <laughs> it, it's really the case mm-hmm. that you have to understand people to a certain extent mm-hmm. to to uh, to see what's going on. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing because I think it, it, it's something that sets me a little apart from conventional historians who don't like to believe there's such thing as, as a human nature, that there's not... Uh, I think that there's not a, I don't believe there's a fixed human nature, but I do think that there are some commonalities that run throughout, you know, human existence and, and recurring themes in, in history. Uh, and, you know, lawyers sort of rely on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, historians might be skeptical of it, but lawyers rely on it uh, and judges rely on it. 
Um, and it's very important to sort of see those patterns and to understand, you know, where, they, where they're coming into play. And this is a story that demanded that mm-hmm. because we don't have Jefferson's writings about this. We don't have Sally Hemings's writings about this. Because it was, they, they, they were, there were no written yeah. records, yeah. letters, diaries. Between or any, the two of them. Yeah. yeah between yeah. them. I mean, Jefferson's friends talk about, a, a friend of his talks about this in, in, a, in a diary. But there's nothing in between the, the two of them. So you, what you're basically doing is drawing reasonable inferences from people's behavior and repeated mm. behavior. And I would trust that over what people say anytime. So that's the, that's the kind of thing that you have to bring to bear in this, this situation. Uh, let's talk a little about Jefferson now. Your, your new book, uh, The Bless, Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of the Mag- Imagination. This is co-written with the, the leading Jeffersonian historian, mm-hmm. and, and tr- what, what were we all trying to do in this book? Well, we were trying to sort of s- strip away a lot of, I think, the, you know, the, the layers that have been put upon Jefferson to try to pull him out, to extract um, uh, Jefferson's own understanding about what he was doing in the world. We think that a lot of books have been written um, about, that are basically sort of saying what Jefferson ought to have done ought to have been doing in the world, and you should have done this, and you should have done that, and you didn't do this, and blah, 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 instead of thinking, well, what did he think he was doing? I mean, this was a person who started out life in a particular way, had a particular mission, and we tried to discover, rediscover, you know, what that mission was by looking at his own writings, um, looking, looking at his actions, and to sort of stand aside and not not be all about judging him, which is what has happened now. He's become sort of the whipping boy for slavery, as if he was the only slaveholder in the founding generation, if he was the only racist white man in the founding generation. It's really kind of, it's like a caricature. And it's being, you know, he's sort of stuck in a ditch. So we wanted to recover this person who is interesting and important to American history, but do it by looking at the world through his eyes, not absolving him of anything, but to say, what, what did he think he was doing? And, and, and this, again, so that in a way, if you, before your writings, you, if, if the historiography builds up Jefferson mm-hmm. and make him, they turn him into a, an, a, a, at one level, he's not human. Mm-hmm. And that, that by bringing his humanity back in, mm-hmm. then, and, and I look at your book, which is, is, is much more that, than what I'm going to talk about, but it's kind of the evolution of his ideas. So mm-hmm. here is a man who said all men are created equal, mm-hmm. and then uh, he he comes out of Virginia, he goes to France, he becomes a revolutionary politician. So his ideas evolve, and I want to talk a little about that. Mm-hmm. So he starts as a man before the Revolution, the American Revolution, as a man of ideas who's a patriarch in Virginia, mm-hmm. a landowner mm-hmm. and a slave owner. Yes, as all of those things. But he also is, crucially, uh, he sees himself as an adherent to the Enlightenment. And he sees himself as a progressive person. Jefferson looked at life through the eyes of science, that we're going to be making new discoveries, you know, inoculation, all these kinds of things are going to make life better. And life is going to get better and better the more educated people become. He develops the sort of tenets of progressivism at that time. He's sort of skeptical of the church, of organized religion. Um, he is anti-slavery. Um, as a young man, he's, you know, he copies a, a poem uh, about uh, the evils of slavery, of the slave trade, in his commonplace book, before he's in public life at all. So he's establishing himself as, I'm a person who is somewhat not better than his co- Virginia cohort, but he's more advanced than his Virginia cohort. And this is the attitude that people have about him throughout his life. There's a story, it may be apocryphal, of Jefferson standing on a courthouse eating a tomato uh, at a time when many people thought tomatoes were poisonous. So this idea of him as the avatar of the Enlightenment um, takes hold very early on, and he, that's how he sees himself. Uh, and so he's this patriarch, as you said, and at the same time he sees himself as a progressive, that eventually people like 
him, that he, they will become obsolete as the world um, becomes more enlightened. And, and he, he, he talks about slavery as a stain mm-hmm. on Virginia and on, on society, and, and he, he makes some modest efforts mm-hmm. to overturn it in the Virginia. But he discovers, uh, he, he discovers that the system won't move. Mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair way to say it? Well, I mean, he, Jefferson, after the revolution, and we have, uh, there's the United States of America, he believes that there has to be a Republican solution to slavery. Republican mm-hmm. meaning majority rules. People have to vote. But he knows that at that time, the people of Virginia are not going to vote slavery out. And he turns his attention to other things that he can do, and that is become involved in politics, and help develop the United States of America. Now, what he doesn't understand is that slavery, by not dealing with slavery, that the United States of America, you know, several decades after that, would split by the mid-19th century. Um, It's already clear near the end of his life that it's possible that the North and the South would go to war over slavery. But that is not something that he would have contemplated or advocate it as a young man. It had to be people voting, and that's that was never. I mean, people say, "Well, he should have done this. He should have, you know, he should have fought harder." But I don't really know how. I, I don't think the people of Virginia and the South were ready to vote slavery out. And, and as a revolutionary politician, uh, at the time of the War of the Revolution, he he sort of you were suggesting in your lecture yesterday comes to the conclusion that Native Americans and the slaves are are not us in mm-hmm. a way because of the possibility they have to align with the British mm-hmm. to get their freedom. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a state mm-hmm. that becomes very difficult yeah. for him to deal with in terms of his original ideas. Yeah, no, at first he's, he's anti-slavery as a young man. After the revolution, it becomes clear that African-American people are a threat because he knew, he said, how can you love a country that has treated you like this? They are, we are enemies and we're gonna be enemies. Um, and he's talking in, in the abstract about African-Americans in general and whites in general. But the interesting thing about it is that in his personal life, he begins to think that he can manage, he knows how to manage the situation to sort of stave off, um, uh, stave off that kind of hostility. But he did not think that was possible on a large scale. And, and so he goes to France and he, he sees America in comparison with France. Mm-hmm. And, and that leads him to extol the virtues of our natural surroundings mm-hmm. and the small landholder, the the character of the individual that comes from his ownership of property. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you call it at, at some point, you say at one point in the book that it leads to, in his mind, a domestication of slavery. Mm-hmm. So he, he develops a theory that says, in effect, there's a public realm and that public realm depends on the individual farmer with his property, mm-hmm. his land, and his slaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that is the, the source of liberty mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the next step. Yeah, in his, no, the, yeah I mean, France is, is critical to his understanding of things because when he leaves Virginia, he's kind of sour on Virginia. He's a terrible time as governor. His behavior was was put under investigation. He was exonerated, but he left France in a kind of left for France in a kind of surly mood about his fellow Virginians. And he gets to France and he sees, uh, he loves the music, he loves the architecture. There are things about the society he loves, but he's aghast at the status of women, uh, women who are you know forward and participating in politics. Uh, he's aghast at beggars on the street. You know, he talks about, uh, and and his daughter talks about, you know, being in a carriage and having beggars and people desperately, you know, begging for money and, and their starvation. So he begins to say, well, you know, we have it bad, but we're not as bad as this. And he becomes sort of, you know, sanguine about 
much more sanguine about the situation with enslaved people in Virginia, and he had develops this idea that he can ameliorate. Krista mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, Dirkscheider has written a book about uh, that talks about amelioration, Jefferson's ideas about amelioration of slavery, making it better. And once you do that, yeah. you, you're just gone. I mean, from a state of war and evil to, well, you know, I could do this in a way that makes it all right. Then that's a way of comforting yourself about this. And he becomes comfortable uh, in, in the institution. He sees the Hemings family. Uh, which you know, the, the family was, uh, six of them were the half-siblings of his wife, including Sarah, Sally Hemings. He sees his relationships with them as the example, you know, sort of exemplifying how he was as a slave owner. Well, of course, they're different mm-hmm. than other enslaved people, but these are the people who are in the house, the people with whom he has the most intimate relations, and he sees himself acting as a good slave owner with respect to a, them. A, bevel, a benevolent... benevolent pa- a benevolent a, slaveholder, the yeah, thing we can't accept. Yeah. Pa- benevolent patriarch, right. which, of course, we're like, ah, you know, you can't yeah. do that. Um, but that's how he saw it. And so the person who had this, you know, very serious idea about uh, the evils of slavery says, I can do this the right way. And, of course, as I said, as we said, that means you're... That's the road to perdition right there. And And the other element in this is his role as the founder of the University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that uh, future generations mm-hmm. who are trained in the Enlightenment mm-hmm. will be able to solve this problem, mm-hmm. but not mm-hmm. here and now mm-hmm. while I live. Yeah, solve it without bloodshed. Mm-hmm. And uh, that eventually this would come. But of course, as we know, that's not what happened. Th- this is a kind of a case study in theory and practice, mm-hmm. in a way. Uh, talk a little about that, because here is this uh, American leader who had these, uh, could state clearly these very powerful ideas of the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. but as he lived his life in Virginia mm-hmm. as a patriarch, as he goes to Paris mm-hmm. uh, and brings over the young slave girl to take care of his young daughter uh, as he comes back. He he really, his ideas sort of confront reality, which he can't change, mm-hmm. and his ideas change. But we do see, I think, that he's a... He's a man who doesn't like conflict. No. He, he likes to ameliorate situations, but when you have a structural problem like racism, that's not enough. No, it's not enough. And it's not enough to, it was obviously not enough for him to become a good slaveholder. Uh, slavery was comfortable for Jefferson. I mean, if you, you know, it, it brought him a lifestyle that allowed him to live as, uh, you know, as a, as a, as a man of, the, of letters, of the Republic of Letters. Madison Hemings talks about him uh, that Jefferson says that Jefferson spent most of his time in his office writing those those thousands of letters that we have, communicating with people across, over the seas and other people in in the rest of the United States. Um, he didn't have to worry about uh, you know keeping his life in order. There were people who did that for him, uh, enslaved people and his daughters who actually served as you know hostesses uh, after he lost his lost his wife. Uh, slavery was. You know, it, it it brought him a level of comfort, and there are many things you you think about saying, you know, this is really bad, but if you're getting something out of it, if you don't have the emotional, I uh, suppose, emotional um, push to do something about it, most of the people who freed slaves in Virginia during that time period were acting under the influence of religion, of evangelical religion, Quakers, um, the Methodists, and B- Baptists. He was not operating under that uh, that system. Religion can make you do things, irrational things, and we think it's obviously the moral thing. But to get rid of your property would have been thought as of as and he was a debtor. Thing. He was in debt. Oh yes, he was in debt to do that. But I mean, there were time periods. If he had conducted himself differently early on, he could have. If he had made it a, a mission to sort of work his way out of debt, he probably could have done that. But you know, how often it's a, it's a human failure. You know something is wrong, but you do it anyway. And and it, it, it does take 
uh, what we were talking about, your, your human insight, your, mm-hmm. your insight about people, to at least we, we've, we've knocked him down from the icon that he was, but he was a human being mm-hmm. operating in his times, and his solutions weren't adequate given what the horror of slavery was. Yeah. But he did other things. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the other things that I think you have to do in approaching Jefferson is to, is to have a little bit to think about yourself. I mean, he was a person who was, you know, a, uh, ambas- a revolutionary, both the Declaration of Independence, an ambassador, a vice president, a president, founded a university. There's a lot of stuff to yeah. do in your <laughs> lifetime. And then you say, oh, and why didn't you solve the slave problem? So you think about, what have I done? Mm-hmm. What are all of the people, you know, when we carp against someone like that, what have we done actively to, to transform our own circumstances? Maybe we've done one or two things, but we certainly haven't been all of those things. I mean, that's a lot to ask for somebody in one life to say that, you know, he do everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, his attitude was, well, look, our generation founded a country. We broke away from the largest, uh, excuse me, the most powerful nation on earth and we formed our own country, and we set up a government. Can't you do something? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, what is the next step that you're going to take? Um, not to, you know, and it, well, it could be an excuse if you want to call it that, but it just seems to me to be, if you look at the record and you compare it to what, you know, what I'm doing, what other people are doing, it's a lot to be judgmental about somebody who's done so much when we've not done anything like that. One final question. Uh, looking back at your career, uh, are there any insights uh, that you have that you could share with us about overturning assumptions, looking at reality that would apply to the present disturbances that we have uh, uh, and, and movements like the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. the confrontation with the police? Because it would seem in, in pointing out and overthrowing uh, structural racism in intellectual discourse. It, it's relevant for, mm-hmm. for the situation we have now. Well, you have to be, and this is a difficult thing, you have to think something is at stake. There has to be a moral, morality is a part of the inquiry. I mean, you, people say you're not supposed to apply your morality to historical. I just don't see how, you can't check that at the door. And morality, I think, demands that people understand that our common humanity, which means that we have to be empathetic. We have to try to imagine what it's like to be a person who is a citizen of the country, but a second-class citizen. You know, what does that do to our country? What, what, are, what heights are we not reaching? What goals aren't we reaching by having large segments of our population who don't have access to true citizenship? So it's about other people, but it's also ultimately about ourselves as a country. We have to want the United States to progress, and that requires uh, really deep soul-searching, and it requires work, the kind of work that I said before, questioning your own assumptions. And I don't know how to tell people to do that exactly, but I, have to, I could say that you should. Mm-hmm. Well, on, on that note, I want to thank you uh, for being our guest today, being on the campus as uh, the Jefferson Lecture. It was uh, Quite a uh, 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 an occasion to for some remarkable insights. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Thank you, and thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.